Amen. This morning, turn with me, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Passage is Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. We've been working through Ecclesiastes through, really, since the beginning of the year and have taken some breaks since then, but now we finally reach the end of Ecclesiastes. The next several weeks till the end of the year, looking at or doing something of a more of a little bit more topical in nature, but next week preaching a sermon on the restoration, uh, restoration, the Reformation. I don't know what the restoration is. November, sermon on life of Martin Luther, and then will take us to holiday season. But today we are concluding Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would take your word, Lord, and with nails fix them to our heart. that long after this hour, Lord, that we would not easily forget what you have written for us. Help us to understand. Help us to apply your word. Lord, your word tells us that you sent forth your word and it always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So we pray that promise this very morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So after having walked through the book of Ecclesiastes, we come to these concluding words, and he says, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's hard to understand the book of Ecclesiastes without that final word of wisdom, or that final imperative, to walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord has been defined in many different ways. To think of it this way, the fear of the Lord is like it's like a great storm with our flashes of lightning that light up the night sky, thunders that make the ground beneath you tremble, this hard hail, heavy rain, fierce winds. When you see a storm like that, you know that it is not something to trifle with. You know that it is a storm that, is, that ought to be revered. 
And the fear of the Lord at the same time is the house in which you take refuge that allows you the opportunity to witness the fierce storm and even in a, in a reverential manner and even be in awe of it. The fear of the Lord is a combination of reverence and refuge, fear and comfort, danger and safety. To where the fear of the Lord is a great storm that is outside, but the fear of the Lord is also the house in which we take refuge. And wisdom is living in both of those realities at the same time, all the time. So then let's turn to the passage this morning and take a much closer look at this final imperative, beginning firstly with the end of the matter. Again, he says in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So throughout the book, we've covered various different topics, everything from marriage and children to work to finances to considering what is the good life and asking what is life's fundamental questions, what are the answers to such things, how to handle finances, a wide variety of topics. And the, then he concludes that the great imperative is this, fear God and keep his commandments. And this applies in every sphere of life, so that if you want to be a better employee in the workplace, fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to be a better husband or wife, fear God and keep his commandments. Children, if you want to be a better son or daughter, fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to be a better parent, fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to be a better church member, fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to handle your finances more wisely, fear God and keep his commandments. And by the way, as an aside, the fear of the Lord is not just lived in sort of in this solitary confinement. It's not only has to do with your individual personal life, but it also has everything to do with fellowship. Because the fear of the Lord is lived out in community, and we'll see much later what we mean by this. But all I have to say is that you cannot say that you walk rightly or even consistently or in the way that God intends for you to in the fear of the Lord, without walking in the fear of the Lord in the context of community. So fear God and keep His commandments. And the keeping of commandments is not something that we do begrudgingly, as in like being asked by somebody who's an authority, say an employer, to do something that you don't really, really want to do, but you have to do it and you might complain the entire time because it's not something that you want to do or it's maybe something you think it's below your pay grade. That's not the kind of commanding or the kind of commandment keeping that the Lord is after. Psalm 112 verse 1, listen to this. It says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So the one who is blessed is not the one who obeys the commands of God begrudgingly, but actually delights and God's commandments. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, seat of, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? 
the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. This is not to be compared with the laws of the land, the laws that govern our lives each and every day, right? that we obey and we should obey and they're helpful for us. But nobody ever says, oh man, I love obeying the, the, the speed limit. Right? I, just, I, I get so ac- excited about it, I get so, uh, so, so passionate about it, I think about it every time I'm in the car until I get out of the car. Right? Nobody ever says that. But this is a response that cannot be helped by someone who loves the Lord. The one who loves the Lord loves the commandments of God. They delight in them. Because the law of the Lord is what gets us right with God, and it is the law of the Lord that maintains our relationship with God. As a way of sort of providing a much more comprehensive understanding of the fear of the Lord, is another way to think of it. The Puritans used to say this, Puritans used to say that you ought to live your life a quorum deo, which is Latin, meaning the presence of God or in the face of God. The late R.C. Sproul defines it this way, to live your life quorum deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. Living your entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. But in this way, all of life is to the glory of God. This is what it means to live your life in the presence of God. It's not just a, an impersonal recognition that there is a God and that He sees everything, that He hears everything, and He understands everything. It's much more than that. It is an attitude, a disposition of the heart. It is an intent to do everything that you do to honor the Lord and with an eye to please Him. Coram Deo is the essence of the Christian life. As I said, it encompasses everything that you do. It encompasses the words that you say. Even the very words that you might mutter under your breath, that you might say to yourself that, no one, that nobody ever hears. To live your life in the presence of God also encompasses your actions, your deeds, the things that you do. It has everything to do with your workplace. How do you conduct yourself in the workplace? How do you do your work? It has everything to do with your text messages, your emails. It has everything to do with your social media presence. If you have one, how do you conduct yourself on Facebook or Twitter? So the duty of every person is to live their life in the very face of God, in the very presence of God. And the teacher grounds his reason for fearing God and keep his commandments. He says in verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, there is a day that is coming when everything will be brought to bear. So imagine, if you will, just a large scroll that contains every single one of your words, You've ever spoken your thoughts, intentions, motives, desires, deeds, all written in a scroll. Imagine just unwinding that scroll, letting it go, 
And he goes, Ryan will unroll down to the floor, beyond the doors, and out and out and out, Owen going and going and going, and it contains everything about your life. And like the red markings that we hate seeing in the exams that we get back from our teachers, right? Many of the deeds and words and thoughts that are not consistent with the harmony of God or consistent with His holiness are those that are marked in red. I read one Puritan say that it's not out of the realm of, we should not consider out of the realm of possibility that on the day of judgment that God would bring the person to remember every single word and deed and thought, the things that you have long forgotten about, the things that you probably have said, might say to yourself, I would never say anything, I never said anything like that, and then come to realize, oh, you did say something like that. Wait, the weight of it all would be absolutely crushing. Ecclesiastes, among many things, is an apologetical book because it seeks to defend the life of faith. And so it has everything to do not only with the one who walks in the fear of the Lord, but it has also everything to do with the one who does not walk in the fear of the Lord. To the one who does not believe in God and not believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you are outside of Christ, if you do not walk in the fear of the Lord, consider what would the evidence of your life point to? Would it point to a guilty verdict or an innocent verdict based on your deeds and words and your thoughts? Because it is everyone's duty to live in the fear of the Lord without exception. But the Bible also says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, without exception. In addition, in this day that the, Lord's, that the Bible speaks of, this great day of judgment, you should not expect that your good works will be weighed against your bad works. That's not how it works. In a court of law, it's not a thief judged regardless of the good works that he's done in his life. Perhaps by the testimony of friends and close family, perhaps a lighter sentence might be given, but at the end of the day, the thief has committed a crime that he will pay for the crime. And for more abominable, heinous crimes, no, the good deeds of the person are not even considered. He's committed an abominable crime, and so he will pay a punishment worthy of the crime. The Bible tells us that every sin is against God, against an infinite creator, which then deserves an infinite punishment. If you feel as though your good works will be outweighed by your bad works, that's not even the standard. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So the standard is perfection. The standard is, no, if you are going to live your life by doing right things, then you'll be judged according to your being able to actually do only good things and nothing else. But we all know that it is impossible for any man or woman to be perfect. 
And the only way to be saved is by trusting in the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world and lived a life of righteousness, spotlessness, sinlessness, and yet he went to the cross to die on the cross. For what purpose? In order that those who believe in Jesus might not receive the punishment that their sins deserve, but instead it is absorbed on the person of Jesus Christ. And the person who believes in Jesus Christ is then receive, it receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They receive forgiveness of sins. They receive eternal life with Christ. That is the only way to be saved from the punishment that your sins deserve. To trust is to walk in the fear of the Lord. To trust is to walk in His commandments. To trust is to live your life, Coram Deo, in the presence of God. To trust is to revere the storm that is Jesus Christ and at the same time to take refuge in Jesus Christ. In the presence of Christ, the kind of living that is demanded of us and one that we must, be, what we must fully embrace is pietistic living. The word piety or pious is not a word that most people use often. In fact, the word pious has sort of been, over time, viewed very negatively as, as if to describe somebody who is extremely, extremely religious, excessively religious. That's not what the word means. The Old Testament meaning of the word pious or piety is one who fears the Lord. The Old Testament word for piety means essentially godliness. It's a kind of life that we're called to. In the Latin, the word pietist or piety means diligence with regards to one's duty to God and family. It's rooted in love and shows itself in loyalty, kindness, and compassion. The thing about a person who is pious is that they see their personal holiness in relationship to God and man and in relationship to the church and the community around him as his primary concern. For the pious person is concerned with his personal holiness. It is his primary concern. And how that's lived out in relationship to God and man and within the church and those around him. And this is what the gospel produces. The gospel produces pious men and pious women and pious children to the glory of God. So then I ask... If this is the kind of life that we are called to as those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is essentially the kind of life that the teacher of Ecclesiastes is calling us to live, the pious life, the good life, the life of wisdom, then the question then becomes, how is your walk? How is your walk with the Lord? Are you living piously outside of this, this building? Are you conducting yourself in a pious manner, say, through your text messages and emails or in social media? I've seen, I've read some Christians say some really awful things in social media. I'm not saying this to anybody here, in case you're wondering. But how are you living your life amongst others? Is your life characterized by this loyalty, this kindness, this compassion, reflecting the very heart and the character of Jesus Christ? 
in every aspect of your life. The life of piety is the good life. The life of meaning and purpose. It is the life of joy. It is the life that is most rewarding because it is the life that is pleasing to the Lord. And that's the kind of life that we want to live. It's the kind of life that is done in Christ by the power of Christ for the glory of Christ. Now, secondly, I want to take us to verse 9, to a herald of wisdom. Verse 9 says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The author is arranging his words, providing many proverbs with great care, writing them uprightly. In Matthew 22, verse 36, a teacher comes to Jesus and asks, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Essentially, Jesus is saying that you ought to love the Lord with all of your being, with everything in you. But I want to focus on just one of those aspects for a moment. Jesus says that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your mind. So loving God requires that you love Him with your mind. That requires teaching imparting of knowledge requires instruction right that is the aim of the church to teach not just to impart knowledge not just to transfer information from one brain to another but it is intended in order to help you and I to love the lord that is the aim of instruction that is the aim of teaching that is the aim of education in the christian church and you cannot teach without imparting some knowledge Ecclesiastes, a word that means assembly. Here is the teacher. He's assembling the people. He's assembling the covenant community. He's intending to impart knowledge, instruction, give to them wisdom, including information, counsel, advice, instruction. Essentially, it's intended to give us an education on life. And everything in the world seeks to educate us. And things we read, things we see in television, from TV shows, social media, movies, everything is intended in some shape or form to teach us, to educate us, especially our children. So we want to be careful not only about, about education itself and how we are being taught, but... What is the center of education? What is the aim of education? Douglas Wilson, in his book, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, writes, to have people who are well-informed but not constrained by conscience is conceivably the most dangerous outcome of education possible. Indeed, it could be argued that ignorance is better than unguarded intelligence, for the most dangerous people are those who have knowledge without a moral framework. It's a dangerous thing to have all this information and knowledge 
without also speaking to the conscience and shaping it and molding it. And this is what Ecclesiastes intends to do for the reader, for the one who heeds its words, not only intended to give you instruction and wisdom and give you information and answer life's toughest questions, but it's also intended to give you those answers in a way that will compel you to move in the right direction. It's intended to give you this instruction through a God-centered worldview, through a God-centered less, with a moral, God-centered and moral framework. Right, this is, should be the aim of any teacher. And this is certainly his aim, hence why he says, the end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments. But he's not just a teacher. As his very title suggests, he is also a preacher. So he's not just looking to impart information, but he's also looking to persuade people. Now imagine Ecclesiastes, if Ecclesiastes was just verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Imagine that was just Ecclesiastes, that's it. Nothing more, nothing less, that's the end of the book, all right, let's move on to the next book, right? Right, but how boring would that be? You might also, you might just be left wondering or asking, can you tease that out a little bit more? Can you... You know, can you expand that? Can you teach us? Can you be a little more clarifying about what you mean by that and what does that look like? That's what the book aims to do. That's the great imperative, and everything essentially leads to that imperative. This is what it's for. And he's written to us in a way of, by way of, by trying to convince us and persuade us that the pious life is the good life. There is no better life than the kind of life that this book presents before us. Fear God and keep His commandments. Nothing else takes precedence. This is first and foremost. And consider the fact that this is written by the wisest man who ever lived. In our society, we don't really prize or value wisdom or even much philosophizing and thinking about life's toughest questions. In fact, it's sort of an apathy, I think, where people don't really care. But that wasn't the case to this audience who first received the words of Ecclesiastes. Okay, consider Ecclesiastes written by the wisest man who ever lived. The queen of Sheba came miles and miles to hear the wisdom of this man. So I would assume that for him to gather, to assemble the people of God, to hear his wisdom wasn't a challenging task. He assembled the people to philosophize with them, asking the fundamental questions of life. The people would just listen attentively, easily, And so would we do the same? Could we read the words of this wise teacher and hang on his every word? And he tells us, this is the end of the matter. After searching and trying different things, nobody understands the world better than I do. And this is what I have to tell you. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. And he presents these words, the words of delight and the words of truth. 
says there in the passage 13 that he studied and he arranged many proverbs with great care. One Hebrew scholar actually translated that word as framing, or he framed many proverbs with great care. So the preacher here, who also is the writer of the book of Proverbs, also writes as a sort of master builder. Right? And if you're a parent, then you know this to some degree, because children come into the world with sort of a blank slate, and that's up to the parent to lay the groundwork, lay the foundation, and then build on top of that foundation, just like you would in any house. You build a solid foundation, and then you begin to frame what will be eventually become the house. And you frame the inside of the house, so you have different rooms inside of the house, Imagine a, a fully open concept house. Not that kind that we are used to today, but completely open. Where there are no rooms whatsoever. It's just a large room. Instead of having sort of a bathroom, you have like a, a bath corner. You have the kitchen. Your living room is just a living quarters. And you have your bedroom. It's not really a room, but it's just a, a bed on a, on a corner of the large room. Right. Somewhat functional, but not really functional. There's no order. There's no structure to it. You can cook in the kitchen at the same time, just awkwardly see somebody taking a shower because there's no walls of separation, because there's no frames inside the house. Wisdom frames the house of our lives, providing structure to our house and providing purpose. And Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, you have to start over. A blank slate. Recognize that you're a sinner. Trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Only then can you begin again and then begin with a solid foundation that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then from there, start building the frame of the house of your life a house that continues to be built in your life and my life that will not be completed until the day we see Jesus Christ. Some are further along than others for different reasons. But in this way, wisdom functions as a sort of framing to the house of our lives. Using words of truth and using words of delight, the book speaks to us in a way as to appeal to our minds, but also to appeal to our hearts in order to compel us to respond in an appropriate manner. Therefore, we must embrace the words of this book, which are not really coming from him, but coming from one who is greater and even wiser than King Solomon himself. And even these words of wisdom, sometimes they can function as pillows for us to rest on, and sometimes they function more like goads, which takes us lastly and thirdly to the goad of the shepherd, verse 11. It says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Words of wisdom not only frames our house, but the book of Proverbs also tells us that they provide a sort of adornment to the house as well. Proverbs teaches us that wisdom is like wearing a gold ring upon your finger or like wearing a pearl necklace about your neck. 
It adorns, it beautifies the life of the one who possesses it. But it can also function as sort of nails to hang our pictures in the walls of our house. But here we have another illustration. It says the words of the wise are like goads. A goad is a long stick with a pointed end used to drive cattle. Right? It's intended to hurt, to poke them, to either keep them prodding along or to get them to move in the right direction if they've been, going, if they've been deviating from the right direction. Words of wisdom, that is, words of biblical wisdom, they are always, always good for you. They always are. They may not always be well-received, and sometimes they taste a bit bitter, but their effect is good for you. It's a foolish project to avoid giving an offense, but we must always strive to avoid giving unnecessary offense is sometimes words of wisdom cannot help but offend. The main idea here is that even wise words can hurt, but they're always intended to steer you in the right direction if you've been deviating from the right path. Here's some examples. Ecclesiastes 3.19, it says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Right? Some of us, or especially today, man might be very insulted to hear the word of Ecclesiastes equating man with animals and say, like, essentially, you're all the same. What makes you all, all the same is that we have no power over life and we have no power over death. There is no, nothing that we can do to conquer death. Might sound, it might sound or be or taste kind of bitter, but the idea here is to get us to consider the short span of our life and how we are living our life. Another example, Ecclesiastes 7.4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Right? We don't want to be in the house of mourning. We want to be in the house of mirth. We want to celebrate. We want to enjoy. We want to get excited. We want to eat. We want to talk with people that we enjoy being around. Right, we want to be in the house of mirth, but the Ecclesiastes says, you know, if you want to grow wiser, you'll spend more time in the house of mourning. Why is that? Because you might, the tendency is to go to the house of mirth to forget your sorrows, to avoid the trials and the struggles of life. Whereas if your house in the house of mourning, that helps you to apprehend the shortness of life. It can function as a way of recalibrating the compass of your heart and make you value the things that are actually worth valuing. Let's go to the book of Proverbs, written by the same author, Proverbs 16.25. Say this to somebody, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Say that to a person who, say, has left their spouse to join themselves to, say, their high school fling. It's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. The word stings. It's intended to point the person in the right direction. Proverbs 21.16, One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. Wow. You walk away from good sense, from right sense, you might end up 
making an assembly or being assembled to the dead. Proverbs 19.18, for those of us who are parents with children in the home, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. In other words, failure to discipline our children is a way of hating them. You want to put your child to death and don't discipline them. Be their best friend. Right? Try telling to that to a parent who wants to be the best friends to their children. Right? That's a hard pill to swallow, perhaps. You struggling with discipline and self-control? Proverbs 25, 28 might be hard to swallow. A man without self-control is like a city broken into a left without walls. Or how about this one? Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. You ever hated reproof? Ever hated being corrected by someone you know, perhaps a spouse? It says, if you hate reproof, you're stupid. Hey, the Bible's insulting you. I didn't say that. The Bible said that. It sounds harsh. And it sounds harsh because it is harsh, but it's intended to be harsh because sometimes we need a harsh word of wisdom to get us moving in the right direction, especially if we've been deviating from the right path. But before we get upset about these words, the author himself points to an author greater than himself. He says that they are given by one shepherd. That one shepherd is the Lord. Sometimes the goad is necessary because it is the goad that helps us to continue to live piously, to live our lives in the fear of the Lord. It's the means of driving us in the right direction. And by and I just I love how he he points to divine inspiration. He's essentially saying these words of wisdom, these collected sayings, these proverbs are not essentially mine. They ultimately come from one shepherd, and that is the Lord. So the teacher, the philosophizer, the counselor, the advisor, the one who speaks to us as a concerned and loving father, the one who speaks to us as a preacher is none other than God himself. And while we're thinking about the shepherd who is God, who provides wisdom and speaks words of wisdom, we cannot help but also think about the good shepherd who is Jesus Christ. And how do the Gospels describe Jesus tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd, that Jesus is the shepherd who knows each of his sheep by name. He is the good shepherd who is not a hireling, who doesn't care about the sheep, but he cares deeply for the sheep. The Bible tells us that the good shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 to go after the wandering sheep. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus is not only the good shepherd, but Jesus is also the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Jesus is wisdom personified. He's the very wisdom of God. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3, it says, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, essentially seeking for wisdom, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. 
So call it out for it. Search for it. Seek for it like silver. Search for it like hidden treasure, a great possession to be found. And to possess is this wisdom. And the the Bible is consistent. It is so harmonious because essentially it is pointing us to the wisdom that is Jesus Christ. For it tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.24 that to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Essentially, the book of Proverbs is teaching us or compelling us to prize wisdom, to seek for wisdom, to search for it as a hidden treasure. Ecclesiastes it, it compels us to live the life of wisdom, to adorn our lives with the prize that is wisdom. And they're all essentially pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is wisdom personified, essentially telling us, teaching us, commanding us, prize Christ, treasure Christ, live your life for Christ. And Jesus, the wise and good shepherd that he is, he tells us in Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 12 says, My son or my daughter, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Certainly a lot of diligent study can be taxing, wearisome, exhausting. Now, he's not condemning the reading of other literature not what he's getting at. Essentially, he's telling us is don't search in the world for the things that can only be found in God's holy book. Don't look for answers to life's fundamental questions in people who are not equipped to answer them. It's that kind of searching that he's condemning. At the same time, he is commending. What is he commending? Well, what has the preacher given to us? He's given us truth and reality. He's given us the way in which we can live the good life. He's taught us what the good life consists of. He's taught us how to maximize our joy in the short life that we have. He has confronted us with some stark and painful realities so that we might live rightly before the Lord because this is the good and pious life. The Bible says elsewhere, every word of God proves true. That is, that every word of God is pure, that is trustworthy, that if you were to cast it into the flames, it would withstand the test. The Bible, the word of God is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness, for pious living. Many books will teach us philosophy, science, history, productivity, and many other subjects. By all means, go ahead, read them if you'd like, if they're interest to you. But only the Bible can teach you how to get right with God and how to live a life that pleases Him, making it the most important book in all of history. Whatever we hear or read out there in the world, whatever man has written, always has to be compared to what the Word of God has written. Because this is the standard, because this teaches us what reality is. This teaches us the truth. 
We can read many other books, but we must live only in God's holy book. We can read many other books, but we must be mastered by God's holy book. We can read many other books, but we must remain anchored in God's holy book. We can read many other books, but we have to be cautious, beware of mixing them with the Bible. We must never elevate man's opinion or man's secular wisdom above the Word of God. And we must not ever take secular wisdom and the words of men and mix them together in the cauldron with the Word of God because what we'll end up with producing is an abomination. It's heresy. It's words that will ultimately lead to damnation and not to eternal life. We must never, ever try to make friends with God's holy book with man's secular wisdom because it's like trying to reconcile irreconcilable enemy combatants. The life of piety is a life of wisdom. It is living each moment of your life in the presence of God with a desire to honor Him and to please Him. This is walking in the feet of the Lord. So continue to frame your house by growing in wisdom, by praying for more wisdom, and applying wisdom. Because the life of wisdom is the best life that you can live. The life of wisdom is the pious life. The life of piety is the good life. And only the Word of God can teach us how to live the best life that we can live. And sometimes, yes, as sojourners and strangers, there are trials, there are temptations, certainly there is suffering. But we know that our trajectory is heavenward. We know that the things that we endure in this life are intended for a specific purpose and reason. Ultimately, the life that we live now in this life is intended to only prepare us for the better life to come, the life that God has guaranteed for us through Jesus Christ.